Open your Bibles, if you would, to, uh, let's see, we'll just start with Acts 6. We're going to look at a number of, of verses. I don't need this, do I? I? just realized it. Do you want it off? Yup. Yup. We're in Missouri. Yup. We're going to be um, ordaining a deacon next week, David Kesselring. David here? Hey, there he is. And um, it's providential that we honored our vets because what we're really honoring is we're not honoring warfare. We're not honoring violence. We're honoring service, right? We're honoring sacrifice. And so that's really what the, the deacon office is about, as we're going to see today. And, of course, it is the calling of all of us as Christians to be servants, Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, or the Greeks, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave or neglect or abandon the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, We may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Nicanor, I forget, Um, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This uh, passage here is considered the institution, if you will, of what's called the office of the deacon. <clears throat> and we see the 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 uh, diaconate, as it's called. I don't like the way that term sounds, but that's what it's called, um, is referred to in a number of places in Scripture. In um, I want to look at a few before we dig in. Philippians chapter 1, if you want to turn there, Paul refers to the overseers and the bishops, I mean the, the overseers and the deacons. He says in Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy bond servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers or bishops and the deacons. Then in First uh, Timothy chapter 3, we have here qualifications for both the eldership and the office of deacon. First Timothy 3, after Paul goes through the qualifications for the elder in verses 1 through 7, he says, Likewise, in verse 8, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. That deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in 
Christ Jesus. One more passage quickly. Romans 16. In Romans 16, in verse 1, actually Romans 16, uh, the first part of it is Paul just goes to a list of people he knew. And he he says, greet so-and-so, and then he says something about them. And it's really cool to read this list and see how... Um, Paul, how affirming Paul was and how he praised and recognized and acknowledged people that he worked with in ministry. He says, it says here in verse 1, it says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sancria. Um, the word servant there in your version might say deacon or deaconess. I'm not sure. And this is one of the, the interesting things about the deaconate is, is that the word deacon and the word servant are virtually identical. And so in some passages, it's hard to know if should it be translated in, in the sense of deacon as the office, or should it just be translated servant. Here, my version says servant, but most scholars actually think Phoebe was probably uh, not just a servant like we should all be, but actually a deaconess. That you may receive her in the Lord, verse 2, <clears throat> in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So the first thing I want to say today about the this uh, topic is, is that in the church, there are two what are called offices. I don't mean an office like down the hall. Not that kind of office. Positions, if you will. And they're elder and deacon. Now, the term elder in the scripture is also synonymous with the term overseer. Some of your versions say bishop. Um, today, the word bishop has a very different connotation. So, I think the translation is a little bit misleading. Um, but we use the word pastor a lot. But in scripture, pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, they're all the same office, if you will. They're the same thing. Although the words have different meanings and there's value in studying those words, when we talk about the two main offices in the church, it's simply pastor or elder, overseer, and then deacon. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the distinction between the two offices is, is primarily one of function. That is to say, God has established the, the eldership as, as an office of um, instruction, Ministry of the Word, and government. Ruling, counseling, admonishing, and things of that nature. That's why in Acts 6, if you want to go back there where we started, when this office is instituted, the office of deacon, notice the rationale here. In Acts 6, in verse 2, the apostles summon um, the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The word leave there can be translated abandon, can be translated neglect. It's not profitable or good that we should neglect the word of God and serve tables. Now the apostles were not above serving, right? It's not a question of service versus not service, but rather it is a question of different uh, areas of service. Because notice this in verse 4. Uh, they continue and they say, said, they say this. After we appoint men over this business, we will give ourselves 
continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That word ministry there is the word service. So it's not good that we neglect the service of the word to serve tables. It's not that, oh, the deacons and others get to serve and we don't have to serve. We serve in a different area. So when we talk about the two different offices in the church, there are a difference of focus and a difference of function, if you will. The eldership is to be an office of instruction, teaching, admonishment, dealing with the word, dealing with prayer, and things of, of that nature. And the office of the deacon is to be one of taking care more, not, not exclusively, but more so with the the physical needs. In this case, it was the needs of distribution of food to those that were in, in need. So the deacons uh, generally take care of ministry to the poor. They take care of the facility. They take care of the church finances. They take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. Because in their service, they're not only serving the body, they're serving the eldership. In other words, they come alongside the pastors and say, what can we do? So that you can do what you're supposed to do. How can we help you do what you're doing? And, and they, they help primarily by what they take away from the elders that the elders don't have to do. So if the elders don't have to sit through a three-hour finance meeting, or the elders don't have to sit through a four-hour building meeting, or the elders have to, don't have to sit through uh, all these kinds of things, because the deacons are taking care of that to serve both the church and the eldership, and then the elders can devote themselves to uh, the word, to prayer, to, to ministering the word, to counsel, and things of that nature. <clears throat> now, all this is probably pretty boring, and you want, you're ready to go home. <clears throat> but I think our I think one one point I want you to hear this morning is is the importance of what we're talking about. The importance. Of what we're talking about. Because the, the thing we have to understand about a position in the church is that the, the value of the office is related to the value of the institution. I'm going to say that again. The value of the office is related to the value of the institution. Now let's say somebody walks up to you and they say, I am the president. And you say, okay, cool. What are you the president of? Well, I'm the president of the local checker club. They have a big thing on their door and they have a big thing on their desk. I'm the president. <clears throat> they have title president. So let's say somebody walks up to you and says, I'm the president. You say, the president of what? And they say, I'm the president of the United States. Well, there's a striking difference between both of those. <clears throat> but they both have the office of president. Well, what's the difference? The, 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 the difference is the institution that the office is attached to. And, you know, a lot of people like their titles at work, and in, even in church, people get into their titles, and they have this title, I'm the president, I'm the whatever of this whatever thing. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's called being a mini-pope, you know? And so... People enjoy that sort of thing. It strokes their ego and, and all of that sort of thing. But but the the significance of the office of deacon, although, as we're going to see shortly, it's a lowly office in the sense that it's, it's a call to service. 
The significance of it lies in the fact that it is an office of the institution of the church. Now, notice I said, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say this church. I said the church. And the, 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 the distinction is vital. Because if you say this church, think, eh, not that important. But if you say the church, well, now we're talking about something very different. Because in Scripture, in Scripture, the church is the object of God's eternal affection. Can I say it again? In Scripture, the church, you listening, ladies back there? All of you that have the name Vaughn? In Scripture, that's how I get an amen out of them. i got to point them out. The church is the object of God's eternal affection. I got it. Do you believe that? So that means that my relationship to the church is really important, not because of who I am, and not even because of what office or position I might have, but because of the institution of the church itself. And Paul hints at this in 1 Timothy 3, which we've read. But let's go back there for a moment, because I want you to see this. This is, this is vitally important. After Paul, in 1 Timothy 3, talks about the qualifications of, of elder and then deacon, he says in verse 14, he says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself In the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Wow. He's saying these two offices I'm addressing, the qualifications that I'm addressing regarding these two offices are important because they're offices linked to this thing. I call it an institution. You might not like that word because it sounds so institutional. Right? We don't like institutions. Let's call it an organism. No, that sounds too biological. Organization? Hmm. You think about that for a while. You can all email me this week. Find your favorite term. The point is, there's this thing that exists called the church. And it's called the house of God. It's a beautiful metaphor. Of Really, it's, it's a metaphor... Uh, built on the idea of a family, that God has a family and we're members of the family, right? And when we come into the church by being born again, we then become God's children and we're part of his family. We're in his household, if you will. And this church is called the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. The, I think one of the, uh, Weaknesses in the evangelical church today is that we have a low view of the institution of the church. Um, we have a, in society, I think we have an exalted view of the civil government, right? We expect the government to fix everything. And then in some parts of the church, the, the reaction to that is then to exalt the family, and the family is the most important institution. But then there's no discussion about the role of the church. God has established three primary institutions, the church, 
the family and the state, and they're supposed to function together. And they serve to be checks and balances on one another. So, um, whether when there's a family, there's a, there's a family that's in distress and they're in need, they can appeal then to the church. I believe the church has a role in holding the civil government accountable. Uh, that, uh, we won't get into all that. The point is, is that each of these institutions is important to God. <clears throat> I believe the church is the most important to God. You probably disagree. You might think it's the civil government. You might think it's the family. But I believe it's the church. Because the church is called the bride of Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Paul is talking about, he's exhorting wives and husbands to do their proper duty. But the beautiful thing about this passage to me is what it tells us about Jesus. And of course, Jesus and his church are the pattern for the Christian marriage. It says in 522, wives, be submissive to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the, the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. For he is the savior of the body. Now a lot of you guys are like, that's cool. I like this. I'm the boss. So he exhorts the, the wife to be subject uh, to Christ as the church is. I mean, subject to a husband, just as the church is to Christ. Um, but then notice what Paul does. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Now, let that sink in, men. All of you men that like to be the boss, like to be in control, like to tell your wives what to do, let this sink in. Is that the pattern of your husbandry is Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus, here's the cool thing about Jesus, you know, he has a, he wears a lot of hats, right? Could say he wears a lot of crowns, but Jesus is a king. Did you know that? I mean, right now, he's a king. And Paul could have said, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also sits on the throne. Did he say that? No. So when husbands are exhorted to, to uh, look to Jesus as the pattern of, of governing the family, what Paul lays out for them is not the regal office of Jesus, not his kingly position, not his authority, but he lays out rather his sacrificial service. For the husband. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave her orders. Oh, it doesn't say that, does it? Love your wife just as Christ loved the church and told her what to do. Doesn't say that either. I tried to find that in the Greek. It's not there. (laughs) Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. The pattern for the Christian husband is Jesus, but it's not Jesus the king. It's Jesus the suffering servant. Jesus calls men to lay down their lives for their wives. That's the pattern. So that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. 
not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So ought husbands to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, and he who doesn't love his wife is a blockhead. (laughs) Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church so much that Jesus suffered and died for the church. Jesus endured the the ignominy of a, a trial in which he was beaten, he was spit on, he was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was tortured with thorns, he was then hung on a cross, he was then stabbed in the side because he loves the church. And some guys can't even get off the couch to get a drink for their wives. Jesus loves the church so much that after being resurrected from the dead and ascending to the throne, instead of just sitting around, you know, enjoying all the praise, it says in Romans 8 that Jesus Christ now lives and he makes intercession for the saints. Jesus Christ today, this day, this moment, is praying for His church. Jesus Christ today, you know what that means? Jesus Christ today is still giving Himself for His church. He's still laying Himself down, even though He's in glory, even though exalted, even though on the throne, He is still laying it out for the church. Still, he intercedes for his church. He is praying for his church. He sends his Holy Spirit to his church. He is instructs and teaches his church. He convicts his church. He admonishes his church. Go to Revelation. We'll, we'll come back to somewhere in a minute. Go to Revelation. Quick, quick. Two. You already there? Wow, amazing. I thought she said where, and she said there. Jesus, look. At, let's look at Jesus. Well, go to one. John gets a vision of Jesus. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. One twelve. And I turned, and I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in the furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Whatever John was seeing, he is just struggling with metaphors to try to explain the vision of, of the exalted, uh, re- resurrected Enthroned Jesus. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels, the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. 
Then notice this, as he tells them to begin these seven epistles, these seven letters to the churches. He says this uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. What are the lampstands? The churches. Where is Jesus? He's walking in the church. And he says, I know your works. The point of this is that Jesus, this, uh, and John didn't have words and he saw Jesus, so I don't have words. Jesus, exalted, enthroned, glorified, still condescends to come and to dwell in his church, to inspect his church. He says, I know your works. That's what he's doing. He's walking through the church and he's seeing, how's my bride doing? How's my church? How's my my sweetheart doing. He's still serving us. That's what he does. That's who he is. He's a servant. And Jesus serves his church. Not just to be a pattern for husbands. He serves his church because he loves her. He loves her. A lot of people today don't like the church. They don't believe in the church. They turn their back on the church. And you know what? The truth is, the church is a mess. And you know what? If you read these epistles in Revelation right here, you know what you find out? The church was a mess then. And there's this whole attitude, well, we need to get back to the primitive church. The primitive church had... Fornication and idolatry and apathy and lukewarmness. And you go through the list. Of the seven churches here in Revelation, Jesus said to five of them, repent. The only two that he didn't say repent to was the church in suffering and the church in revival. Other than that, you need to repent. Right? Go Actually, go to chapter 3 in Revelation after toward the end, the end of the the seven letters, he says this in verse nineteen: "As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten." So Jesus inspects his church, walks amidst the the lampstands. He knows the works. He gives a word. He gives instruction. He gives encouragement. And you know what's cool about this? I know I'm getting way off topic here, but can I share a cool insight? Yeah. All right. When you read, you ought to go home and read these today. You can read them in a couple minutes. There's a pattern to these letters. And each letter begins with, this, with a self-description of who Jesus is. And then he says, then he gives an evaluation of the church. And it always begins with the same phrase, I know your works. And then he gives an exhortation at the end. But as you meditate and look at these letters, what's really cool is that the self-description of Jesus, it's different to each, each church. But what Jesus says about himself is the solution to the problem he points out. It's really cool. Because Jesus is the solution to the church's problems. Knowing him, 
Understanding Him, seeing Him for who He is, serving Him, loving Him, worshiping Him. He's the solution for the church's problems. I'm way off topic. The point is, the point is that Jesus loves His church. Jesus loves this church. Jesus is giving Himself for this church. Not because we are anything special, because we're far from special, but it's simply because we're part of His church. And so He gave His life for us. He still continues to give His life for us through intercession, through inspection, through encouragement, through ministry, through all that He does. And He's still serving us today. It's astounding to contemplate this. You know when I when I get when I, I'm most impressed with 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 Jesus' service, it's going to sound silly. It's when I have to feed the cats. <laughs> I don't like my cats. They shed, they stink, they're fat. I don't like them. Just being honest with y'all. Sorry. And then I'll go down there and the, the food bowl's empty. Feed these fat cat again, <laughs> and I and I, I swear on on my I'm not supposed to swear I won't say that okay, but I'm telling you the truth I'm telling you every time I fill that bowl up I think this is what God does for me every day, every day He waits on me, every day He provides for me, every day He serves me, and I'm like how in the world, God can you do this? How can you do this? But that's the heart of God. And we see it revealed in the heart of... Oh, by the way, there's some really cat lovers here. Please don't send me those hate emails. I like your cats. It's just my cats, okay? I like your cats. Anybody ever seen the Dean's cat? That is the cutest cat. I like that cat. But I don't have to take care of it. That's why people like being grandparents. They can always give the kids back. You know what I mean? I like, I, that's what I do with, that's the way I am with cats. I love cats. Oh, I love cats. Just in your house. Okay, I know I'm in trouble. Um, but I think I made the point, didn't I? I hope. I hope a little bit we get a little glimpse of the fact that the church is important because it's the object of God's love. It's the object of Jesus Christ's sacrificial, sacrificial love. Um, well, and because of the importance of the church in God's eyes, that means our attachment to the church becomes important. That means our service to the church becomes important. That means if we have an office in the church, it's important. Not because of who we are, not because we can put a plaque on our door, but because the institution is valuable to God. And so when we talk about the, the, the office of deacon, it's important because of its link to the church, which God loves. But it's also important for the second reason. Second reason is this. Is that the office is an office of servanthood. An office of servanthood. And that is not appealing probably to you. But it was, it was very important to Jesus. It was very important to Jesus. It, it could be argued that in many ways, 
the office of deacon is a model of Jesus Christ because he was the ultimate servant. Amen? Go to, um, go to John 13. There are many, many passages we could look at. Actually, I think I want to look at something else first. Yeah, let's look at this first. Go, go to Matthew 20, then we'll go to John 13. So Matthew 20, um, this is a really, this passage always blows my mind still to this day. Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and Don, came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him, meaning him, meaning Jesus. And he said to her, what do you wish? And he said, grant that these my two sons may sit one on the right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. Now you talk about a a stage, what they call a stage mom. Wow. You talk about an ambitious mother, right? She, She wants her boys, her boys, to be on the right and the left of Jesus. I mean, like there's like no higher place. Well, you might as well shoot for the stars, right? Um, Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's what he said. You don't know what you're at. You don't know what you're talking about. By asking me that, you don't really understand what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said, we are able. <laughs> wow. And he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. It's for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And then when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. I can can dig that. I can understand that. So the the, the irony, and it's kind of a tragic irony, this, this whole passage is... That this is right on the eve. I mean, this is Jesus ready to lay it all down for them and for us. Jesus, he's going to give the ultimate demonstration of servanthood and sacrifice. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. I mean, you talk about spiritual obtuseness. I like that word. Spiritual hardness. Spiritual blindness. Whew. It's frightening. So Jesus calls them together, verse 25 says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. This this issue of power-hungry politicians is not new. It's been going on since the dawn of time, since the fall of man. Man has sought dominion over men in an ungodly, oppressive way. It's always been with us. So he says, this, the gent, this is how the Gentiles do it. They lord it over people. Yet it shall not be so among you. For whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus takes the worldly values associated with leadership and authority and he completely inverts it. 
Very often today, when we, if you've ever been to leadership seminars, you'll see things like a pyramid and the leaders are on the top of the pyramid. Jesus takes the pyramid and he flips it over. Our greatness in the eyes of God, not the eyes of the world, but our greatness in the eyes of God is based upon not who waits on us, not who serves us, but how many people do we serve? If we want to be great in God's eyes, not in the eyes of others, our family, our friends, our community, our work. If we want to be great in the eyes of God, Jesus said, then we must seek to serve. And the more people we serve, the greater we are in God's eyes. Jesus not only taught this, and he taught it repeatedly, he says he is the example of what he taught. In verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, Jesus could have come a different way, but he came in obscurity, he came in poverty, and he came unto rejection and ridicule and a life of service and giving. When you read the gospel, you see Jesus was continually laying out his life for others. People were continually appealing to him for teaching, for healing, for food, for ministry of various kinds. And he he has to just literally run away to the mountains to get time for prayer. There was such a great demand on him. He was giving his life. He gave his life. And then he gave his life ultimately, of course, as we know, on the cross. Now John 13, and we'll close. A well-known passage, but let's read it together. In John 13. Now this is, this is happening right here in John 13. Right, this is going on right after the situation with James and John and, and their mother. Okay, So this is all contextualized. So Jesus says to them, You should not want the places of honor and glory but rather choose the place of service where you can you can serve the most people. I gave my life, just as I came to give my life, to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And then in that context, we see Jesus do this, John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose up from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, you are washing my feet. And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Then Simon said, Well, Lord, then wash my feet and also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. But you are clean, but not all of you. Referring to Judas, of course. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. 
So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? And that is the question. That's the question we have to, that's the question we all have to ask ourselves. Do we know what Jesus just did here? Do we know? How do we know if we know? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is our Lord. Amen? Jesus is our Master. Jesus is our teacher. We say well. Oh, that was easy though, wasn't it? Wasn't that easy? Let's say Jesus is Lord. Can you say it? That was so easy. That's why Jesus said, you call me this and you say well. But it's only words. The truth is, he's wanting them to see, is that if you call me Lord, and I, the Lord, wash feet, guess what you get to do? You get to wash feet. Because you are my servant. If you call me Lord, you're my servant. And the servant is not above his Lord. So Jesus says, because I have chosen to be a servant, yet you call me Lord, you are a servant also. Because you are called to be like me. And if we disdain service, if we, and when I say disdain, I don't mean look down on it when other people do it. I mean disdain it, we refuse to do it ourselves. Then we are saying we're better than Jesus. That's what the Lord is saying here. You're not above Jesus. A lot of you are really cool people. But there's one thing I won't grant you. You're not better than Jesus. He's your Lord. He's your master. And he has said, if you want to be like me, not if you want to be, you're called to be. How's that? You're called to be like me. And here's what I'm like. I get up from dinner and I serve. I get up from dinner and I wash dirty feet. I'm the one who is... uh, put out for the sake of others. I'm the one that's making the sacrifice for the benefit of others. I'm the one that's giving my time. I'm the one that's giving my energy. I'm the one that is giving his life for others. You sure you want to be a Christian? Because that's what we're called to do. And there's many ways to do it. But, But what we must understand is we're all called to do it. When we appoint men to the office of deacon, we're appointing men to an office of service. And it's honorable because in the eyes of Jesus, service is honorable. And it's honorable honorable because Jesus himself was a servant. That's why it's honorable. 
But the thing we must understand as a church is that we don't appoint men to a position so we don't have to do work. That is not the way it works in the church. That's not how it works. Every Christian, and by Christian, I mean if you call Jesus Lord, if you say He is your Lord and your teacher, you have a calling to servanthood. And it may manifest itself in different ways in your life, but every Christian has a role, every Christian has a gift, every Christian has ministry. You, are you listening? I know it's been long, I know, I know. I just have to say this, you have something to do for the kingdom. And if you didn't, I believe God would take you home. I mean, I asked the Lord, why am I still here? I've got a little more to do for the kingdom. That's why we're here. Whether you're 15 or whether you're 95, it doesn't matter. If you're still here, you have something to do for the kingdom. You are called to serve the interests of God and the interests of others. So, let us determine, each one of us, on a personal level, what that calling is. And then live it out. Amen? Let's stand together and pray. Lord, we thank you for your heart. We thank you, Lord, that um, it's just incomprehensible, your love. Incomprehensible, Lord, that you would lay down your life, not just back then on the cross, for people that were your enemies, but that even now you continue to give your life. You continue to lay down your life for us through praying for us, ministering to us, serving us, providing for us, all the things that you do, Lord, for us. You're still a servant, even though you're on your throne. It just blows my mind. I pray that we, Lord, would see your servant heart. That as a people, we'd be a people who, when we call you Lord, we would serve you. And we would serve you by serving others. We ask the Lord for your glory, your honor, the benefit of your church and your kingdom. We pray it all in your name, Lord. Amen.